Leviticus 9, 22-24, the reading we already did. Um, yes, tell it not in Gath, declare it not in Ascalon. We're going to try to make our way through three chapters of Leviticus this morning. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar And when all the people saw it, they shouted, shouted with joy, and fell on their faces. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him for help. Lord, I think of your servant Paul who prayed For the Ephesians, that the eyes of their heart may be opened, that they may see what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and what is your power toward us who believe. And so, Lord, we would echo that prayer, say, open the eyes of our heart. We would echo the prayer of the psalmist. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your Torah. And so indeed do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt there had been much excitement in Israel. They had been slaves in Egypt for many years. Their baby boys were being tossed into the Nile River. And God, through ten powerful plagues of judgment, hand-plucked them out of Egypt and brought them out into the desert. God spoke to them through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But then Moses, their great leader, their great champion, who stood toe-to-toe against Pharaoh, being the mouthpiece of God, went up on Mount Sinai and they weren't sure if he was coming back. And then somebody had the brilliant idea, thinking that we need a representative for Yahweh, we need something tangible in front of us, we need a golden calf. And Aaron, not exactly being a great leader in that moment, acquiesced. Sounds like a good idea. Everybody throw in your earrings, throw in your gold chains, throw in your rings, throw in your toe rings and whatever rings you have and we'll form a golden calf. And the Lord was furious with this great evil, this leading Israel into sin, violating 
Certainly the second great commandment to not make any graven images and maybe even the first commandment of putting other gods before him. Aaron had sinned greatly against the Lord. And then Aaron and the rest of the book of of Exodus, he fades into the background. He's not very much involved in the building of the tabernacle and all the instructions that take place. And there's this kind of question mark that's left hanging over Aaron. Is God done with Aaron? Well, Leviticus chapter 9, 8, 9, and 10 is the answer to that. That indeed God is not through with Aaron. Indeed, God was going to use Aaron and his sons to be priests in Israel. Now, often when we hear the word priest in our context today, we think of somebody with a clerical collar who you visit in a confessional booth. But priests in ancient Israel, they were mediators between God and man. And this is what we're going to see in Leviticus chapters 8 through 10. We're going to see both the ordination of the priests of Israel, the first officiation, the very first sacrifice in Israel in the tabernacle, and then we're going to see the desecration of the tabernacle through this priesthood. And I think through this, we're going to see through this priesthood that's introduced to us in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see attributes of God shine forth. And and these attributes of God, I think, are intended to shine forth so that we would respond the same way the people responded at that very first sacrifice with a shout of joy and face planted in the ground. Let's first of all see that God is a God of grace from this priesthood. Now let's pick up the story in Leviticus 8.1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as Yahweh commanded him when the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So again, this is a new section and we know that because this is how Moses often begins a new section. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and instructions are given For Moses to tell Aaron to get all these different ingredients together. Both the clothing of the priesthood that had been laid out in Exodus chapter 29 and 30. uh, uh, Lots of these instructions had already been given in Exodus chapter 29 and 30. Of what the priest's uh, uniform is to look like. And how this initial ceremony is to take place. And so gather all that together and then assemble the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now when we see congregation, now when you, when you get to the book of Numbers, there's a lot of Hebrews, okay? More than likely, it wasn't the entire assembly of, of, of tens of thousands of Israelites. It, w- it was probably 
um, representatives. The congregation here, as the word is translated, probably was heads of household, maybe even heads of clans, which would have then led into the different tribes. Representatives were to then stand there and witness both the consecration of Aaron and his sons in this first sacrifice that was to be made at the altar. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron and his sons come near and and, and wash them with water. This is a kind of cleansing ritual that was to take place. And after this cleansing ritual, we're going to be introduced to the uniform of the priest. Now, this isn't a total shocker. If somebody um, joined the military, there would be a time of training, and then eventually there would be a kind of graduation ceremony, right? In which the, 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 the person in the military would get on their uniform and they would be decked out in, in, in that uniform. And there was, there, there was no doubt symbolism with the different pieces on that uniform, or if a police officer was, was being inducted as a police officer, there would be a certain uniform that would go along with it. Or even, I, I know doctors often have a hooding ceremony uh, when they enter into that profession to signify this is, the, this is now the new profession, the new doctor, this is the, the uniform that goes along with it. And so this is what we see here in verse 7. It says, he put the tunic on him and girded him with the sash clothed him with a robe and put, on the, put the ephod on him. He girded him with the artistic band of the ephod, which was tied to him. Then he placed the breastpiece on him. And, and, and in the breastpiece, he put the urim and the thummim. And so here we're introduced to the, to the robe, to the sash. And then there, there's, there's two different pieces of this uniform that I want to draw your attention to. One was the breast piece. The breast piece would have had on it different 12 different stones we learned from Exodus chapter 29. And each of these stones represented different tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember it was Joseph who had 12 sons and those 12 sons become the heads of the different tribes of Israel. And this was a very symbolic way of highlighting that these ancient priests functioned as mediators between God and man. That the priest as he served in the tabernacle and was making sacrifices on behalf of the people and as he was involved in accepting those sacrifices and offering the incense and offering the the, the different animals and the grain offerings, all that he went in there as a representative of those 12 tribes right on his heart. Right on his heart. The priest had the people of God on his heart as he stood interceding on behalf of the people of God. No doubt a wonderful picture of even our Lord Jesus Christ who is our high priest today who comes before God with his people on his heart. But not only was he a representative for the people of God to God, the priest also served as a representative for God to the people. And we see that with the Urim and the Thummim. Now, 
we read that. Now, sometimes translators in our English text don't know exactly how to translate something, so they transliterate. They just bring it straight, fresh from the Hebrew right into English, and that's what we have here. We have two Hebrew words, Urim and Thummim, and, and we don't know all the specific details of the Urim and the Thummim, but it was some kind of thing that was a, a kind of a casting of lots to discern the will of God and the voice of God in particular situations. Remember, there's, there's an account at the end of 1 Samuel where, where, law, or, uh, where um, Saul is desperate to hear from God. God had cut off his communication to Saul and he's desperate but God wasn't speaking through any of the means. It wasn't through the prophet and he also wasn't speaking from the Urim and the Thummim. And so the Urim and the Thummim were to be a kind of prophetic way of hearing the voice of God through these priests as mediators between God and his people. Verse 9. He also placed the turban on his head and on the turban at its front he placed the golden plate the holy crown just as the Lord had commanded Moses so here we have this turban on the head and there's a gold plate that is described here as the holy crown in other words that these priests are to be seen as dignitaries in the royal court of God. The throne room of God. This is what the tabernacle, and especially that innermost part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies represented. You know, it was kings in the ancient world who would often, their thrones would be surrounded by cherubim. And sure enough, that's what we see here. If we were to look at the hardware of the tabernacle and especially that Holy of Holies, there was two cherubim sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant, no doubt symbolizing here's the very throne room of God. And so it would make sense that, that courtiers, the priests who serve within that throne room, have regality to them. They have royalty. That is demonstrated with the crowns on their head. And again, this is signifying that, that these priests were representatives of the king. They were representatives of the people to God, but they were also representatives of the God to people. Also, I want you to note what is not mentioned here. There is no prescribed footwear to the priests. Say, so what do you mean? There was no prescribed sandals to the priests because no doubt they didn't wear any sandals because they were treading on holy ground, much like Moses and Joshua in the very presence of Yahweh God himself. Verse 10. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them and he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him 
to consecrate him. So here is this anointing oil, and it's explicitly stated at the end of verse 12, the purpose of this is consecration, namely to make it holy. Holiness, the word holiness is the idea to be set apart. Everything in the tabernacle, including Aaron himself and his sons, had to be made holy. And this was indicated with this anointing oil. They had to be set apart, distinct and devoted to Yahweh God himself. Verse 14. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. So this, this is the first offering and, and, and it makes sense. The area had to be cleansed, right? Remember the sin or the de-sin offering, also known as the purification offering. The special, unique function of this offering was not only atonement, but also to purify, even atonement to be made for the altar, for the tabernacle. This is the one that was splattered on the veil, And here, this sin offering is offered. Verse 15, next Moses slaughtered it, took its blood, put his finger uh, on and around the horns of the altar and purified the altar. Then he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. He also took all the fat that, uh, fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat. And Moses offered it up in smoke on the altar. Now you will notice with this sin offering, it's at this point, it's just this outer altar that is cleansed. And why is it only the outer altar and the innermost part is not cleansed? Well, the reason for that is because the innermost part had not yet been tainted and infected by the presence of human priests. And so it was only this outer altar that gets cleansed by the sin offering. Verse 18, Then he presented a ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. The second offering, this is, so we're getting a good review of the offerings here. This is the burnt offering, the ascension offering. The primary function was atonement here. And again, these priests and their own sins had to be atoned for. They were coming and serving in the presence of Yahweh in his very throne room, but they themselves were sinners. Drop your eyes down to verse 22. Then he presented the second ram. Now this is the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it, took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear in the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot. So this is a unique offering that we've not yet seen up to this point, which would make sense because this is the very first ordination of the priest. And this ram was to be offered in this ordination offering. And then this seemingly strange ceremony where Moses dipped his hand in blood. He puts it on the right lobe of Aaron's ear, the right thumb of his hand, and his sandal toe, his big toe. And most 
commentators believe this was a, a symbol, a picture of the consecration of the priest's entire body unto the Lord. As one theologian says, the ear, because the priest must at all times hearken to the holy voice of God. The hand, because it must execute God's commands, and especially the priestly function. And the foot, because it must walk rightly and holy. Verse 26. From the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake and one cake of bread mixed with oil and one wafer and placed them on the portion of the fat and on the right thigh. Verse 30. So Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons and sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his garments, and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. So here one of these offerings was of unleavened bread. And then there's this sprinkling of blood, not only on the altar as we, we've also seen, but now on all the, the, this new uniform that Aaron is wearing. And again, the, the explicit statement that's said here in verse 30, this is for consecration. This is to set Aaron and his sons apart as holy unto the Lord, to be devoted holy to the Lord. And now it's time to eat. Verse 31. Then Moses and Aaron and his sons boil the flesh at the doorway of the tent of meeting and eat it there together with the bread which is in the basket of the ordination offering just as I commanded saying Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And so much like Earlier on in Torah and Exodus when Moses and the 70 were there and Sinai eating in the very presence of God. Here's Aaron and his sons eating in the very presence of God. And then verse 35, at the doorway of the tent of meeting moreover you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord very importantly keep the charge that is whatever God commands you do so that you will not die for so I have been commanded notice again this is this is a kind of standard that uh, OSHA would be very nervous about there was many job hazards. You could be struck dead at any moment. You do exactly as Yahweh commands or you die. But also I want to draw your attention. This ceremony that we've just gone through. This ceremony of all these three different sacrifices are, that are offered. The blood and the splattering of the blood. And the smearing of the blood on the ear and on the big thumb and on the big toe and all this. This is all to take place for seven days. This elaborate ritual was to happen over and over, day after day, for seven days. Does that remind you of anything, by the way? Seven days? Remember, Torah, take it as a whole. 
Think back to the days of creation. The seven days of creation. And so this is a kind of picture of recreation. Recreation taking place. Moving on to chapter 9, verse 1. Now it came about on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then the sons of Aaron, you shall speak, saying, take a male, a goat for a sin offering, and a calf for a lamb, and a lamb, both one year old, without defect for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. And then get this, hold your breath, for today, Yahweh, the Lord, will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. Notice again, here are these three offerings, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, and the grain offering. And it's fascinating here. There almost seems to be a kind of theological ordering to these sacrifices here. This is going to be now this first offer. The, the offerings that were in chapter 8, these were all specifically on behalf of the priest. But now this is going to be the first offering on behalf of Israel. And now God promises, do it as I say and I will appear in your midst. But I do want you to notice one animal mentioned here. It hasn't been mentioned up to this point. Verse 2, take for yourself a calf. Verse 3, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb. I almost wonder if Aaron was sitting there and he looks at his boys and says, did he say what I think he said? Oh, no, he didn't. The calf, remember the golden calf? Almost as a humbling reminder for Aaron. You need atonement on your behalf. I'm still going to use you. But walk with a limp. Remembering that awful day in which you led Israel into idolatry. And then they sacrifice of, of this is all described in verses really 6 all the way down through the end of the chapter. And so drop your eyes now to verse 22. This is what we read earlier. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. He lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making a sin offering and the burnt offering and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. He blessed the people. Well, what is a blessing? What does that mean that he blessed? It's a prayer. Uh, just as Pastor Dale often comes at the end of the service and, and, and he, 
usually recites a, a benediction, a prayer, a prayer of blessing. We have one example of a blessing that the priest would pray. It's often called the Aaronic blessing. We don't know if this is the exact same blessing that Aaron prayed, but it may very well be. In Numbers chapter 6 and verse 23, it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I tend to think that this probably was the blessing that Aaron prayed. And it is a prayer. It is a prayer that is asking God to smile upon his people. It is a prayer for God to be gracious to his people. It is a prayer for God to show favor towards his people. And that's what's being asked here. This is, this is Aaron's way of saying, God, we're, we're trying to do all that you've said that we're, we are to do. And we're now offering this sacrifice. Oh God, please accept this sacrifice. Please smile upon us with your favor. And so there would no doubt been a kind of... Uh, Anticipation, is God going to answer this prayer? Is he going to smile upon us? Is he going to show favor to us? And so in verse 23, the answer comes. When they came out and blessed the people, it says the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Now the glory of the Lord, this is not a new concept that's being introduced here. It it harkens back to the book of Exodus where the glory cloud would often appear before the tent of meeting and the glory cloud, both the, the, uh, the fire by night and the cloud by day would lead Israel uh, when it was time to move the camp and to travel. It, it was that glory cloud. It symbolized the very presence of Almighty God. So now God shows up after the sacrifice. And here, notice what is said here. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Verse 24, then fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering. Fire came out. And when it says it, it came out from before Yahweh, perhaps be, from, from before the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, fire came out. And all of a sudden, the, the burnt offerings consumed, it's incinerated on the altar. And friends, this is, uh, this is God answering Aaron's prayer. This is God showing favor to his people. This is God showing that indeed he did accept the sacrifice that had been made. Indeed, sins had been forgiven. Atonement has been made. God's grace was abounding towards his people. This, my friends, is a wonderful picture of God's kindness towards his people. All of this this that he's instituting with the priesthood and the sacrifices is because he wants to dwell in his people, with his people. He wants to have a covenant relationship with his people. He wants to be with his people. But sin keeps getting in the way. 
but God wants sin to be atoned for. And in a very tangible, vivid, picturesque kind of way, he miraculously brings fire and consumes the burnt offering. It made me think of even a similar way in which God, in a kind of public way, accepts another sacrifice. When we read through the gospel accounts, the gospel writers intentionally record some of the cosmic events that were taking place around the sacrifice of Christ. Do you remember between the hours of noon and three in the afternoon, between the sixth hour and the ninth hour, the gospel writers record that darkness fell over the face of the earth? This was highlighting that indeed God's judgment was bearing down upon his own son. The fury of hell was coming down upon the Lord Jesus Christ in those hours. Not only that, the temple, that Herodian temple of that day that had that innermost veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. Do you remember the gospel writers record that it tore in two? It tore in two from top to bottom. It was like the thickness of a, of a phone book. And it miraculously shreds in two. And these, these cosmic signs, these supernatural signs were God's way of saying sacrifice has been made and it's been accepted on behalf for your sins so that you are now accepted. You are now able to enter into the Holy of Holies. You are now able to have a relationship with God because atonement has been made. And as if those cosmic signs were not enough, three days later, the tomb is empty. And Jesus is risen from the dead. And this is God the Almighty in His kindness giving us tangible signs, tangible pictures from heaven itself to say, my child, atonement has been made. Sins can be forgiven through Christ and if you but trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, all is paid for. If you cast yourself upon His mercy, if you trust only in Him, sins have been paid for. Friend, do you struggle with assurance, certainty of Salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Do you know that God wants you to rest safely and securely in those promises? He doesn't want you constantly wondering whether you're accepted before Him. He wants you to have the joy and confidence. And, and by the way, that's the response here. In fact, when you look at, at verse 24 there, it says, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, in the New American Standard, and, and many of the translations just translate, have shouted. But, but there are a couple translations, the, the NIV and the, the New Living Translation. 
Translate it, shouted with joy. And most of the times this word is used in the scripture, it is indeed a shouting with joy. A shouting with joy, but also notice how it's accompanied. They fell on their faces. So it's a shouting with joy, but it's a shouting that, that, that causes one to abase themselves before the Lord as being in the very presence of that glory cloud. God wants you to have joy. He wants you to have the joy of knowing his face is smiling upon you. Your sins are forgiven. But you can only have that certainty if you're trusting in the sacrifice that we now know has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it, my friend. If your acceptance before God is based upon how much good you do, how much good is good enough? How many good things do you have to do before God accepts you? Could you ever know? Could you ever have assurance? Could you ever have certainty that you've done enough good? No, my friend, you couldn't. You couldn't have certainty that you've been accepted and forgiven before God if it's based upon you and your performance. Because let's be honest with ourselves, friends. We ain't that sweet. Not only that, we have a history. Aaron had a history. Aaron had a history of failing miserably as one of the leaders in ancient Israel. And this passage is indeed a testimony of God's grace and kindness even towards Aaron. Aaron is like the Old Testament Peter. Peter who really messed up. Denying the Lord three times. And that would be bad enough. But that was on the heels of him boasting. Jesus me and you we're tight. I'm in it to the finish. Right? But then some little girl says. Hey. Aren't you one of those Galileans who follow Jesus? No. And he denies the Lord. Some little servant girl. Friends, you have a history. I have a history. We need God's grace. We need the sacrifice. We need the assurance that in the promise of God, child, your sins are forgiven. But not only do we see God as a God of grace, we see God as holy. Chapter 10. You were wondering if I was going to get there. Now, before we get to chapter 10, I want you to feel something of the drama here. I said Aaron had a history, right? But God wasn't through with him. And he, you know, and, and, and no doubt on that day, you know, he and his boys are decked out in the uniform. This was an exciting, happy day, right? No doubt if Mrs. Aaron was there and she had a smartphone, come on, get together. Here, get together. And pictures would have been taken. They're all decked out in their priestly uniform and the boy's a little bit embarrassed. Come on, Mom, enough pictures already. Excitement was in the air. 
God had come to visit his people. But now there's going to be a major letdown. Verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. And again, friends, think about this for a second. Those of you who are parents, you long for your children to succeed. You long to see them doing well. You rejoice at their successes. You weep over their failures. Sons of Aaron. They took their respective fire pans, holding the fire. And after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. And notice this very important phrase, which he had not commanded them. They did something they were not supposed to do. Now again, remember, the job hazards. Leviticus 8.35 said, At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord. Do exactly what God says, so that you will not die. For so I have been commanded and now here Nadab and Abihu Aaron's two sons they do something they weren't supposed to do now the text says strange fire much ink has been spilled on what the strange fire was all we 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 can say for certain is Exactly what Moses records, which I take to be that which he wants us to take home. If he wanted to tell us exactly what it was, he would have told us. But he does say it was doing what God had not commanded. They did something, whatever it was, that they were not supposed to do. Verse 2. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Hush. Remember the end of the previous chapter in verse 24? Fire came out from the Lord. But that fire was the fire of God's grace. It was the fire of consuming the ascension offering, the burnt offering. It was God's way of saying that he was accepting the sacrifice. But this time fire comes out from the Lord and it's a fire of wrath and indignation that takes the life of Aaron's two boys. Nadab and Abihu become the sacrifice because of their sin, because of their disobedience. Then verse 3, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, 
I will be treated as holy before, and before all people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Wow. Again, imagine the emotions going on in Aaron's heart. And Moses has a first century ACBC certified biblical counselor. He intervenes and he gives biblical counsel. He says to Aaron, Aaron, the Lord has already told us this. He said that those who come near to me, those who would serve me in the very tabernacle of the Lord, that I must be treated as holy. I must be set apart. I am to be honored before all people. In other words, whatever Nadab and Abihu did, it wasn't treating God as holy. It wasn't revering the God of Israel. It was taking him to be a light being. It was not honoring him. And Aaron just closes his mouth. What can I say before God? Verse 4, Moses called to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and he said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary outside to the outside of the camp. So here instructions are given to Aaron's relatives, his nephews, to come and take Nadab and Abihu's bodies outside the camp. And this is, there's very good reason for this because were the other sons of Aaron, Eleazar, uh, and, and the other son to come and to touch these dead bodies, they themselves would have been unclean. So instructions had to been given to these other relatives of Aaron to come in and get these bodies out and to take them outside the camp. Verse 5, so they came forward, carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die, so that you will not become wrathful against all the congregation, but your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out of the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses." So here instructions are given for these other sons of Aaron to not go through what have been the normal mourning ritual. In fact, instructions are given uh, regarding this later on in Leviticus chapter 21 that, that the, the priests were not to go through that normal mourning ritual when it was a, a relative of theirs again because they would have been coming into contact with a dead body. There may also be something here that the mourning might have, well, hold on that. Well, what do we take away from something like this? We, the, the initial kind of gut reaction would be to say, this seems like a little bit overkill, literally. 
Seems like a little bit much. And, and, and let me deal with just a couple objections to this because there, there can be a kind of visceral, visceral response that, that this isn't right or this isn't fair or even perhaps pity for Nadab and Abihu and for Aaron. There might be an initial reaction, well, well, this is, you know, Matt, we're in the book of Leviticus. I know you've got to do this for your school project and whatnot, but, you know, we're New Testament Christians, and this is just not how the God of the New Testament deals with people. Well, tell that to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who lied to the Lord and were struck dead. Tell that to Herod. In Acts chapter 12, who refused to give glory to God, and God killed him. Tell that to the people in Corinth who were getting drunk at the Lord's table and gobbling up all the food before others got there, and the Apostle Paul says, some of you are asleep, and by that he didn't mean taking a nap. God killed them. So that really doesn't work. And then none of that. Tell that to the people who according to Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. The liars, the sexually immoral, etc. Who are cast into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever. The doctrine of eternal punishment gets even more clear as the scripture unfolds into the New Testament. So that doesn't really work. But let me, let me challenge that, that, that notion that this isn't fair. It's, let me just ask you, where does your standard of what is right and wrong come from? You see, because it's always criminals who cry file. I mean, you know, we have a couple corrections officers in here. No doubt, inmates regularly appeal their own innocence before the law. Their own raw deal that they've gotten, even though... They are guilty. It's criminals who always cry file. And we are the criminals. Criminals have a skewed view of what's right and what's wrong. The standard of what is right and wrong ultimately comes from God and His standard. God is the great lawgiver. And can I suggest to you that this might seem a little bit over the top because we have a skewed view of what's right and wrong. And we need to recalibrate our understanding of righteousness by going to God in His Word. You see, friends, when, when we read through the various capital crimes in the Old Testament, where we read through passages like this and scratch our head and wonder that, you know, God would kill people for this. You see, the reality is, is that it's a, it's a wonder that God doesn't kill people any and every time somebody sins. Because indeed, God did tell our first parents, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Every sin is worthy of death. And the fact that God does not strike us dead the next time we sin is mercy, not justice. But also, there is something to be said here, the reality that Nadab and Abihu had higher and greater accountability because as I mentioned at the beginning, remember their regality, their crowns on their head, remember the uniform? They were ministering and serving in the very presence of a king. 
They're ministering and serving in the presence of Yahweh himself. And, and you think about it, it's one thing for your child to lie to you. It's another thing for somebody who serves as a courtier in the very palace of royalty to sin against the king. And Nadab and Abihu sinned against the king in his very presence. And we're struck dead. Can I suggest to you that we tend to not see sin very seriously because we do not take God very seriously? Our sin is often thought of as a light matter because we think light thoughts of God. We think He's just like us. But, my friends, God is holy. And while there may be some similarities between creature and creator after all we are made in his image there's still a vast chasm that exists between the creator and the creation because God is holy and while we we can shout with joy over the forgiveness of sins we also ought to have a healthy face plant I mean think of it friends God himself is in the person of the Lord Jesus, that first petition that is to be prayed in the Lord's Prayer, we're to pray, hallowed be your name. That God's name would be regarded as holy. David Wells, the theologian, wrote this, God has been drained of glory, divested of majesty, denuded of authority. The fundamental problem of the evangelical church, Wells asserts, is not inadequate technique, poor organization, or irrelevant music, but this is what Wells says, that God rests too inconsequentially on his church. Until we restore the weight of God, nothing will do. The staunch flow of blood from the church's wounds needs to be stayed with a healthy, robust view of God. Friend, do you regard God as holy? Do you hallow his name? Do you approach God as he says he is to be approached? Your sin problem, my sin problem is so great, it needs blood atonement. It needs the exact, proper, prescribed blood atonement, which is found today in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the most direct application to Nadab and Abihu doing something they weren't supposed to be doing is any attempt to get to God your own way. To get to God your own way in, the own, in your own self-prescribed manner. Oh, my dear friend, don't try to get to God through your own way or some, some, some innovative way. You come to God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you get to Him. Well, we see in our passage that God, through the priesthood, God is a God of grace. There 
is sacrifice. There is even the possibility of assurance, but there is also a God who is holy, who's not to be trifled with. And thirdly, there is a God who is faithful. A God who is faithful. How do you see the faithfulness of God? Well, remember the clear instructions in 835. All these charge, all the commands had to be kept so that you will not die. And then as you go through chapters 8 and 9, you're going to see this phrase repeated over and over. Chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. Verse 5, Moses said to the congregation, This thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Verse 8, he placed the turban on his head. A turban on, uh, 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 on the turban at its front. He placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 13, next Moses had Aaron's son come near and clothed him with tunics and girded him with sashes and bound caps on him just as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 17, the bull was hide. This is to be done just as the Lord has commanded Moses. Verse 21 of chapter 8, more instructions are given just as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 29, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 30, just at, or which the Lord commanded through Moses. Uh, chapter 9, verse 7, just as the Lord has, Lord has commanded. Chapter 9, verse 10, then he offered up smoke in the altar just as the Lord commanded. 9, 21, just as Moses had commanded. Did you get it? Just as he commanded. But then on that tragic day, 10-1, they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Do what God says, live. Don't do what God says, die. Sound familiar? Genesis 2, 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may eat from any tree of the garden, but in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will, show what? Surely die. Remember back to the first message I mentioned, the tabernacle, it's a replica of What? It's a replica of Eden. And Adam served as that kind of first representative of humanity, that first priest in the garden. And the day he ate of it, he died. He was driven out of the garden. And here, in a very real sense, in Eden 2.0, the tabernacle has been built God says, do as I tell you to. And here again, the representatives of God's people, Nadab and Abihu, failed. Much like Adam failed. And they too surely die. And it leaves one waiting. If you're reading through the Old Testament, you're wondering, would there ever be a priest who would qualify? Would there ever be one 
in whom sacrifices for his own sin would not be, need to be made? Would there be one who would, be, who would perfectly obey and do as God said? And we see there in the garden, not of Eden, but the garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus say, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, he says, He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God is faithful. While man is unfaithful, the priests and the institution of the priesthood failed. But the priest has come. He is the way back to God. And if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, in the New Jerusalem, it's fascinating. There's dimensions that are given. In Revelation 21.16, the city is laid out as a square, a cube. Its length is as great as its width. It's me- it measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and its width are equal height. It's a perfect cube. You know what else was a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies. Material of the wall was jasper, pure gold, clear glass, all these different stones you know who, where else we see these precious stones? On the breastpiece of the priest. On the gates, there's 12 pearls. Verse 22, I saw no temple for the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And this city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations, that's us. The Gentiles will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. When you fast forward to heaven, it's a picture again of the tabernacle which is a picture of of Eden God's people back in the presence of God and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death will be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore Revelation 21 3 and 4 we're able to get back It's the presence of God. But it comes through this lamb. Not through the priesthood of old which failed, but through the Lord Jesus, our champion. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you and praise you. We thank you that we have a great high priest who succeeded where Adam failed, who succeeded where Nadab and Abihu failed. We thank you for your faithfulness and bringing us through your promise back to paradise. I pray each and every person in this room might trust in the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, 
in whose name we pray, amen.